Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Margaret Morrison, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. Her new book, Reconstructing Reality, Models, Mathematics, and Simulations, is just out from Oxford University Press. Almost 400 years ago, Galileo wrote that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. Today, mathematics is integral to physics and chemistry and is becoming so in biology, economics, and other sciences, although amid great controversy. The messy reality of biological creatures and their social relations cannot be captured in mathematical models or computer simulations, or so it is argued. But what is the relation between mathematics and physical reality? Do highly abstract mathematical formalisms and computer simulations yield empirical knowledge? If so, when and how? In her new book, Morrison considers the epistemological status of the results of modeling and simulation as compared and typically contrasted with the results of experiment. She argues that no sharp distinction between simulating the world and measuring the world can be drawn in modern science, and that there is no justification for epistemically privileging the results of experiments over the new knowledge we derive from idealizations, abstractions, and fictional models. She draws on a wealth of detailed knowledge of physics and other sciences to provide this important contribution to the literature on the epistemology of modeling in modern science. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Margaret Morrison. Are you there? Hi, Carrie. How are you today? I'm fine. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks very much, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to do this. Um, well, I'm very, very excited to be talking about your new book, Reconstructing Reality, Models, Mathematics, and uh, Simulations. Um, and you're talking, you know, the book is about a, a really... Uh, really fundamental issue about scientific knowledge production, um, you know, the role of, of, of fictionalizing, of idealizing, of abstracting. And now, of course, with, with the growth of computer simulation, I mean, what all that, you know, sort of mathematical structure, you might say, um, how that relates to the physical world and how we get, you know, knowledge about the physical world from the use of these, you know, various sorts of mathematical tools. So it's a very, uh, a very interesting subject in its own right, and it's also um, uh, increasingly important as as more of biology 
And social science becomes mathematized in a sense, controversially, of course. And then, of course, the increasing use of of computer simulations um, throughout the sciences. So, um, before we before we get into the actual contents of the book, maybe you can say a word about uh, yourself as a philosopher, how you how you came to philosophy, um, and how you came to this area of philosophy and to to the writing of this particular book. Okay, well, um, when I was in, I guess it goes all the way back, really, to when I was an undergraduate, and I was taking a lot of different courses, um, none of which appealed to me very much. And um, But I hadn't taken any philosophy courses. And I was working as a research assistant in uh, the Department of Biophysics, working with um, a, a biomedical engineer and um, some people from the Department of Medicine on projects that used computers to develop uh, body surface maps of people who had uh, heart attacks and then use those maps to try to develop therapies that would uh, decrease the um, damage to the heart muscle. And so we were doing a lot of clinical trial work and I got very interested in questions about biomedical ethics um, during this period and so I decided I'd take a philosophy course in biomedical ethics and while the course was interesting it just seemed to me at that time this was back in probably 1979 or 1980 that um, a lot of the discussion and a lot of the literature in bioethics seemed to be rather abstract and, and not really um, engaged with what was going on in clinical settings. I think that, that situation has changed dramatically <clears throat> in the past 30 years. Um, so my interest in medical ethics um, didn't really amount to very much, but I got interested in philosophy more generally and um, then went on and did uh, a BA, finished a, a BA in philosophy, and then decided that I would do a philosophy of science degree at uh, Western Ontario, which was one of the places that was particularly focused in philosophy of science at that time. And um, so, yeah, I just got interested in um, in philosophy of science. And then my interests were really formed, I think, when I was doing my dissertation because I got very interested in the relationship between uh, methodological arguments for scientific theories, arguments like, you know, the unification of the theory, the unifying power, the explanatory power, and how one traded that off with um, experimental evidence, arguments about the experimental um, validation of a theory. So then as I um, began working as a, as a faculty member, I got my interest sort of um, extend in that way, but um, always I was very interested in how the the structure of scientific theories, the, the mathematical structure of scientific theories, actually gave us knowledge about the world. And my first book was on um, unification and arguments for unification in science. And then I uh, did also an edited book called Models as Media which I edited with Mary Morgan, and that was part of, a, again, a project on how abstract models give us knowledge about the world. So this current book is really the, um, 
the culmination, I suppose, of, a, of an entire career, or 30, 25 years at least, of uh, thinking about these kinds of things. And so my thinking has obviously changed in, in relation to the way scientific theorizing and indeed scientific experimentation has changed over that period. So um, that's kind of how I got from an undergraduate to where I am today. Well, it certainly does, you know, the book itself does, you know, cover a lot of ground in terms of um, uh, the whole uh, idea of idealization and, and simulation. Um, you you start with, you know, you divide it into three parts. One is sort of an introductory, setting the stage in terms of mathematical abstraction and idealization and how these methods contribute to understanding physical systems. Um, then you turn to issues about how these models uh, relate to reality, um, the question of representation, um, how you get um, knowledge from such unrealistic uh, models. And then in the, in the last part, which, which I want to focus on to some extent, um, you break a lot of new ground, I think, in the epistemology of computer simulation. Um, and uh, so let's let's just start at the beginning. You you um, you sort of argue that you know less is more in a way that you know less detail um, that the less detail that you get from mathematical abstraction and idealization and so forth um, actually contributes to understanding the physical systems, and so you get uh, you get new knowledge from. Uh, from the less detailed. Um, and one of the things that you also establish in this, in this section is what you mean by abstraction and what you mean by idealization, which are key concepts here, obviously. Um, so can you say a bit about what you mean by those, those concepts, abstraction, idealization, and then... Um, uh, how these methods are uh, are necessary for understanding the the modeled physical systems. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as I mentioned, and as you pointed out, the um, the way that I understand abstraction and idealization is very different from the way it's currently used in the philosophical literature. At least, most people um, define abstraction in terms of taking something away. So if you have a theory about or a model about a laser, you don't need to put in what kind of laser it is, whether it's a ruby laser or what the actual lasing material is. You just have a, a model of how the, the, the sort of physically in producing uh, laser light. Um, so that seemed to be uh, a definition of abstraction. And idealization is typically understood in terms of distortion. So you have uh, the, the common example is the frictionless plane. Um, we know that there aren't any such things as frictionless planes in the world, so we've distorted our idea of what a plane is or a rigid rod, something of that sort, um, to, to model the object um, in in uh, in a scientifically uh, productive way. So I think that actually that is while it's it can while it's interesting. I think it really is the wrong way to think about it. Um, 
partly because I think if we just say abstraction is leaving things out or taking away, um, then I don't see that that's really so philosophically interesting because we do that all the time when we want to explain something. We don't explain every single detail of a particular situation. We often just leave things out that we think aren't relevant. So I don't think there's a lot of philosophically interesting things you can say about abstraction if you think of it in that in those terms. So I thought I think about abstraction as rather in a, in a more positive way as the need to employ a kind of mathematical notion in order to model the system correctly. And an example of that would be the requirement that you need um, an infinite system in statistical mechanics to explain phase transitions. So phase transitions simply can't be explained without the assumption that you're dealing with an infinite system. Um, in population genetics, uh, the original models developed by R.A. Fisher required uh, an infinite population of genes in order to get uh, reliable results. So idealization, by contrast, is something that allows for uh, correction. So you say you have a frictionless plane or a rigid rod, you can add um, corrections to that model to make, to add back the force of friction, um, to uh, uh, make the, the rod more realistic in terms of malleability, that sort of thing. So you can, you can or you don't have to, depending on the modeling situation, um, correct the model and, um, and make it uh, more realistic. Now, I should just go back for a minute and, and differentiate between um, the example, the two examples I gave when I was discussing abstraction. One was the uh, requirement of an infinite system in statistical mechanics, and the other was a, the requirement of an of a, a infinite population of genes in um, population genetics. Mm -hmm. In the latter case, sorry, did you have... No, I was just... No. Go ahead. Okay. In the latter case, um, of course, you don't need an actually infinite system in order to uh, uh, model the, the population and to get reliable results. It's just that the bigger the system is, the more reliable your results are going to be. So you can approximate that infinite system in a, in a sort of smooth way. So it allows for a kind of smooth approximation. Whereas in the original, the other case, the statistical mechanics case, um, you, you require the infinite system. There's no notion of approximation here that's going to give you uh, more or less exact results. So the notion of abstraction and mathematical necessity is really most prominent, I think, in those cases of, of statistical physics. Um, so anyway, that's how I uh, understand uh, abstraction and idealization. And I think that it really makes more sense to think of it in those ways when we look at the way in which physical systems are modeled, because there are some cases where um, the mathematical abstraction, the notion of an infinite system, is just necessary. Um, and it doesn't involve taking anything away, or it doesn't involve a notion of correction. And that's very different from 
a rigid rod or a frictionless plane. Mm-hmm. And I think so in order to get an accurate picture of what modeling looks like, um, we need to really focus in on the kinds of models that uh, are constructed and and the, the nature of those uh, of those constructions, the, the mathematical nature of those constructions. So um, this sort of raises the question of um, to what extent you know many biologists would be persuaded of uh, the necessity uh, of the mathematical modeling. I mean, you know, as you note, you know, and controversially, you know, biology. Many people uh, are hardcore experimentalists, and um, they do not think that the mathematics adds anything at all, uh, or at least nothing fundamental, or at least nothing some nothing necessary. Um, and you just, you know, your position is that, you know, in some cases at least, and maybe that's where we want to focus, um, that you need to model, you know, because of this need for infinite you know, populations or something. Um, but what, uh, to, to a biologist who is not at all convinced of the need for mathematical models in biology um, outside of population genetics, say, which, which is already highly mathematized, um, what would you say to those many biologists who feel that this is not at all necessary, in fact, may be um, hampering progress? Well, I think it also depends on the the problems that you're interested in, but uh, we know that biology is becoming increasingly mathematical now, and just, you know, things like, for example, um, wound closure. There are all kinds of mathematical models for ischemic wound closure that are based on partial differential equations, and then those models are simulated in order to try to come up with um, efficient therapies for uh, wound closure. Um, Mathematical models of uh, free boundary problems are used all the time in investigating cancer tumors. Um, Mathematical models of lung responses to infections that are then uh, simulated in order to try to again develop various sorts of drug therapies and, and so on. And indeed, my own background when I was working in biophysics, um, the body surface mapping um, that was used to determine the efficacy of certain kinds of treatments for uh, myocardial muscle um, after after a heart attack. So. All of those things, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, we want to be uh, close to the ground, as it were, and we want to be with the, the sort of the biological phenomena. But mostly we don't, we're not able to understand those phenomena. We're not able to understand a lot of the effects that, and, and occurrences that happen in, in human beings and indeed other sorts of species. Um, without these sorts of mathematical models. And biomathematics now is just an enormous field. Um, 
that is growing all the time, not just in terms of, of mathematical modeling, but also in terms of the use of simulation. So I think while it's nice to say that, well, we want to be in there in the field and uh, uh, experiment is important, um, I think much of the experimentation that takes place now in many fields in biology actually begins with simulation and mathematical modeling. So I think to kind of deny it and say that somehow it's, uh, you know, it's too much abstraction and it takes us away from what we're really interested in is just kind of to put your head in the sand and uh, not really um, recognize that, that this is how investigation is, is proceeding now and indeed how it will in the future. Okay, well... Um uh, since you've since you've mentioned simulation, and, and I'm very interested in getting to that, maybe we can uh, skip ahead to, and maybe then go back to some of the intermediate sections of the book, um, and go to the part where you do talk directly about the epistemology of, of simulation. Um, and as you noted, I mean, this is you know a jumping off point for a lot of things. Um, so one of the one of the more um, uh, controversially might say um, arguments that you make um, in the book um, is a defense of what you call the simulation as measurement thesis, and um, this is very roughly the idea that uh, at least in some cases um, the results of simulations are epistemically on a par with the results of, of measurements or, or generally with, you know, sort of direct or techno- technology-mediated contact with, with uh, physical reality. Um, so let's, can we start with that maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, say something about um, uh, why and when um, simulating in a computer um, and then measuring something with some sort of an instrument, taking some sort of observation um, are not, in fact, um, epistemically uh, distinct. Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, the argument kind of turns on two points, and one is, I think, the the nature of measurement itself, or the nature of what we typically call experimental measurement, um, and the other is the nature of the kinds of of systems that modern science, or, well, I'll I'll say modern physics, deals with, um, because I can't really speak for a lot of other uh, sciences. So let me start with the measurement claim. One of the interesting things about contemporary physics and its growth and development over the last hundred years is the way in which experiment has changed in that period. So if we think back to the late 19th century and we think about what it meant to to perform an experiment, we think of people like Hertz uh, producing electromagnetic waves in, in his laboratory um, using laden jars and uh, all kinds of, you know, sort of tabletop devices. And then we think of what experiments in high energy physics look like today um, and the evolution of you know particle detectors from you know, bubble chambers and cloud chambers in the 
late to or mid to um, part of the 20th century to the uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, um, and the whole nature of experiment and experimental measurement has changed. So now, very often, when we're we talk about measuring something, what we're really doing is talking about comparing a number of models. So we have a model of the experiment, we have a model of the the uh, apparatus, we have a model of the data, and it's all about layers and layers of modeling. And so we don't really take what we think of as a raw observation and say, oh, look, I, or even a number of raw observations and say, oh, look, I have this result of my, my measurement yields this particular result. Um, very often, um, it's, it's nothing like that kind of directness, that kind of hands-on materiality that many people who champion experiment over simulation want to appeal to. I mean, the science, the physics is, experimental physics is just not like that anymore. Um, so we need to rethink the way we think about experimental measurement and what we're actually doing in that, in that particular context. So then when we do that, it starts to look like the same, a lot of the same kinds of practices that are involved in experimental measurement are involved in simulation. So simulation starts to look not that much different from experiment. We've got levels of modeling, we've got um, comparing simulation results. I mean, if we think about um, looking at, say, particle collisions at the Large Hadron Collider um, and measuring particle collisions here, what you're doing is you're looking at a screen and you're seeing computer-generated images on a screen. Um, and so what you're doing when you're looking at simulation or when you're involved in simulation, is looking at computer-generated images on a screen. Now, mind you, there's a difference here. One is allegedly signal-generated. The other is the result of the way the machine was programmed. So we would say, well, you know, the, the signal has generated this particular um, uh, computer image. Um, but that image is nothing unless we've, we know how to model the, uh, uh, the, pr the particle production, we know how, what the, the, uh, the showers are going to look like, we know what physics behind all of that is. So it's, it's invo what's involved is a lot of modeling. So simulation then starts to look like experimental measurement. But it's not the case I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to say at this point it's the case, although I think you can make an argument for it. It's just that I, I haven't done so in the book. Um, that, you know, not all simulation, of course, is created equal. And I don't mean that just in terms of, you know, the, 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 the goodness of the simulation or the, the ability of the simulation to be validated, but rather different kinds of simulation. So you have, you know, Monte Carlo simulations, you have finite element methods, finite difference methods, and then you have this method called um, particle methods. And particle methods very closely um, mirror or represent actual 
physical system. So you don't get that a lot of that sort of same black boxing that you do in a lot of other stimulation programs. So in the book, what I tried to argue for was the... Um, the closeness of simulation to empirical measurement on the basis of these particle models. And so, as I said, I think you can perhaps extend that argument, although um, I haven't done so and I I wouldn't be prepared to argue for it now, but um, I think it's certainly possible. So, again, I think it's the the nature of simulation starts to look a lot like the nature of experimental measurement. So... um you know, if you blur the line, then you know, as as you urge between between simulation and uh, you know what you sometimes call access to material systems in some some other way, you know, some experimental uh, way, um, you know that that sort of begins to raise important epi- general epistemic issues about the privileging of experimental results over simulation results. Um, so if we, as you suggest um, in, the, in the book, if we widen the category you know, of what counts as an experiment or experimental knowledge or experimentally based knowledge, um, you know, is, is everything in that category you know, on a par or, is there, or, or does this just mean now we just have to find a different way uh, a more justified way to distinguish between the things that are now in this enlarged category. Yeah, I think that um, you know you certainly can't just take the category. I mean, I know philosophers are very fond of looking for general conditions um, and and trying to sort of clump things together in in categories and, and classification systems. But I think part of the Part of the problem here is that um, if you say, well, look, in some cases, simulation is uh, epistemically on a par with experimental measurement, you have to be very careful in distinguishing um, the kind of simulation that you're talking about, um, the kind of experimental measurement that you're talking about. I, mean, I would, would never go so far as to say that, um, you know, in all cases, simulation can just replace experimental measurement. But the people who want to deny that simulation can ever have that kind of uh, epistemic status, I think really are closing their eyes to the way that simulation is used all around us. So, for example, if we think about the way the, the U.S. Department of Energy deals with nuclear waste, um, all of those strategies for dealing with nuclear waste are based on simulation. You can't experiment with nuclear waste um, and, you know, say, well, gee, we got it wrong this time. But uh, So all of that is based on simulation. When we think about, you know, just the simple example of training pilots, um, they're trained in a simulator um, because... We can't go out and experiment on, you know, pilots' responses to bad weather conditions. Um, So, you know, simulation knowledge, whether we like it or not, is at the foundation of a good deal of our daily life. And so 
in some cases, of course, it's going to be the, the, the case that, you know, experiment is going to be the final arbiter. So take, for example, the, the search for the Higgs boson. You can never show or prove that a particle exists if you're doing only simulations. There has to be these signals that the particle um, is, is when the particle is produced. Um, but that said, the five sigma result um, that was associated with the discovery of the Higgs boson, um, the idea that, um, you know, it was the, the probability that if the particle didn't exist, there was a one in 3.5 million chance that you'd get the same result or a result that confirmed um, the, a particle ex- that the particle existed, a false positive. Mm-hmm. That result um, and that five sigma significance wouldn't have been possible without simulation data. So they put the signal data and the simulation data all together um, in the sort of data processing, if you will. So in that case, the actual so-called experiment um, had at its very foundation simulation data. So the, the sort of idea that you're contrasting experiment and simulation in the Higgs case is really um, a sort of uh, mis, uh, a misdescription of what's going on, and not to mention the fact that the entire experiment, the the uh, the part of the the collider, the the placement of the magnets, the whole building of the the, the apparatus was done um, on simulation. So I think you know again, it's not to say that simulation has completely replaced experiment or that in some cases experiment's not going to be the final arbiter. Um, and indeed, there are lots of cases where people run simulations and then want to compare them with experiment. But at the same time, I think what we need to recognize and what my argument was essentially trying to show was that we need to be a bit more aware and broaden our horizons about not just the role of simulation, but also its epistemic status. Um, partly for the pragmatic reason is that it just it just is functioning in that way. So given that it is functioning in that way, um, what what do we need to be able to say about it, or what can we say about it philosophically? What are we forced to say about it philosophically, mm-hmm. um, given that it does play this role in uh, not just in science, but in, in so much of our daily life? Uh, yeah, so well, let me ask about, um, you mentioned the Higgs boson, um, and uh, one of the cases that, that I thought of as I was reading that, that chapter, which is um, chapter 8, actually. Um, uh, so, you know, again, within physics, you know, what I know, of, what I know about, um, you know, debates about string theory, uh, one of the things I've heard from people who do philosophy of physics and things like that um, is that string theory used to be this like hot, hot area, um, and all the like smartest people were in in string theory, and and those were all were all the you know fantastic jobs and so forth. Um, and then the fire kind of died because, uh, or has been dying um, because uh, there were no uh, empirical consequences that could be drawn from the theory. And and there are still, of course, people who are doing that. 
But that's the maybe that's a caricature of the sociology of physics in recent years. But um, but that's the general uh, the the gist of um, what's been happening with with string theory. You know, lots of great, complicated, wonderful mathematics. Uh, no experimental consequences, um, uh, and so the excitement has has apparently died. Um, so, does your view of simulation, uh, uh, you know, if you can simulate uh, string theory results that are you know just mathematical, um, uh, the scientific um, consensus on that seems to be that's that really isn't good enough. You do really need the some sort of other experimental result, uh, or at least in theory, some sort of experimental consequence uh, for that to be a legitimate bit of knowledge about physical reality. Um, what what do you say about that? Well. Um Part of the problem with string theory is that there's, there's so many results um, the, the, to the equations. I mean, the, and, you know, it has these, um, you know, I don't know how many dimensions string theory has now. But I, I, the, the, the main problem is not so much that, I mean, you can simulate these results, um, but there's something like 10 to the 500 possible solutions to the equations of string theory. Um, they all correspond to a different physical world with different values of the physical parameters. Um, and so what really what string theory does is explore the mathematical landscape of multidimensional space. So you then have to ask yourself, well, what's the relation of that space to the space we inhabit, the space in which, you know, particle collisions occur? And that's really the problem with string theory, I think, is that when you say that you can't get empirical results from it, it doesn't mean that you can't, um, uh, you know, calculate the solutions and find empirical solutions that correspond to a particular world that's postulated by string theory, but there's just no way to narrow things down. And so you could simulate all you want, um, and it's not going to help you to actually um, narrow down the, 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 the theory's predictions to the point where it, it's functioning as a physical theory in the way, for example, the standard model is functioning. So I think that simulation here, while it will allow you to do lots and lots of interesting calculations with the mathematics of string theory, um, it doesn't help in zeroing in on the the sort of empirical nature of the theory. Okay. Um, Let me ask one other question about about simulation, and this comes up uh, more in the context of philosophy of mind and um, uh, discussions of the computer model of of the mind. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the common uh, criticisms of computational models of thinking, 
and this goes back to probably Searle, is probably the most prominent defender, um, is the view that uh, at most you've got uh, weak AI, what he calls weak AI, the idea that you know, with a computer, you're just you're just simulating thinking, um, and it's not real thinking. It it lacks um, some something, uh, intentionality or whatever it is. But it's not real, um, and so there's that uh, that distinction between you know merely simulating something and reality put in opposition to it. Um, and you know, in your discussion, of course, of simulation, there's there's no such you know sort of opposition going on between something that's a mere simulation and then reality. Somehow, the simulation is a way at of of getting at the reality. Um, so, uh, how do you you know when is something a mere simulation, um, or does that idea about simulation just not capture the the idea correctly or are there just different concepts of simulation that are going on here that that you know just are really just different things altogether yeah well i think let me go back to the the point you made about cyril and um you know so the idea is that you know it's sort of lacks intentionality and so it's just uh it's just simulating thinking it's not real thinking um and i think that argument is very much analogous to the materiality argument that people give when they're talking about the opposition of simulation and experiment is that well simulation has no materiality somehow materiality is the mark of reality yeah yeah um now, it, I mean, I sort of, I, I, I see that in some way as begging the question. I mean, first of all, you know, what, is, what does he mean by, I mean, I'm not an expert in the philosophy of mind, um, but, you know, to just say, well, intentionality is the mark of real thinking um, is just in some way to, to just beg the question in the way that you say, well, materiality is the mark of, of reality in, say, physics. And you say, well, well, what do you understand by materiality? And, and as I mentioned a while ago, um, the notion of materiality was something that was... Um, you know, very direct and and very easy to understand in the 19th century in many cases. But it's certainly not so easy to understand now in con- a lot of contemporary uh, uh, physics experiments. So I think that, you know, to, to say, well, it's, it's just sim- mere simulation because it lacks intentionality is not really a, a very convincing argument. But I think the the opposition point that you mentioned is also a a good one because certainly not every simulation, um, you know, if if I'm sitting at a computer and I, you know, do some little simulation on a a laptop computer, I don't want to say that I'm performing experiments. Um, So I think that the the context in which the simulation is used um, is 
really has to be taken account of in the overall evaluation of the epistemic status of the simulation. So, you know, if I want to, you know, if I'm doing sort of chemistry experiments in my basement, there's a big difference between me and the, the trained chemist who's functioning in the lab, even though I might think I'm doing, you know, important experiments or something of that sort. But I think that, you know, the the idea that there's an opposition between simulation and reality, of course, I, I'm not trying to deny that. I think, of course, there is. But there's also a point at which they come together. And the point at which they come together is going to be defined in terms of the way the simulation is used, the, uh, the way the simulation has been legitimated, the amount of faith that we can have in that simulation. Um, so, for example, to go to the, the case of the airline pilot in the simulator versus in the air, of course, the, there's a difference here. Um, if he crashes the plane in the simulator, no one gets killed. If he crashes the plane in the air, well, you know, chances are everyone does. So there's a big difference. But at the same time, simulation knowledge has sufficient epistemic power in that case for us to think that pilots are adequate, are, are a big part of their training can be assigned to cockpit simulators. So I think that it's not a hard and fast distinction. It's like most things, but I think, you know, philosophy... Philosophy in, in the attempt to, to sort of classify and try and categorize everything um, doesn't like messiness. <laughs> and unfortunately, the world is very messy. And so I think when we want to try and say something that's philosophically interesting about a lot of these cases, we can't really generalize in the kind of ways that philosophers often want us to. Okay. Okay. Um, so let me just ask another question again about about simulation, um, and this this is one you you do address in in chapter seven, I believe, um, the reliability of it, which you just kind of illustrated with the with the um, flight simulator example. Um, uh, one of the arguments again against the epistemic, you know, quality, you might say, or or. Uh, the uh, at least as for a lower epistemic status for um, the results of simulation um, is just the idea that you can only get out of a simulation what you put into it, um, and so there's no new new knowledge there. So that all the the knowledge that we rely on to use the case of the the, the simulator, you know, a skeptic might argue, well, you know, sure we've got these simulators. They, we rely on them. We don't go around trying to crash planes and so forth. There's a huge amount of actual, you know, flying uh, as as well as you know mathematics and physics um, behind the development of those of those simulators. So that all of the parameters there have been actually tested um, or derived from actual measurements or data. Um, so what what do you say to somebody who who says that that the simulator it it's not providing anything new it it relies on something else 
on all this other background uh, interaction with the material world. Um, and while it is a way of accessing maybe that knowledge in a very compact and easy way, uh, and, and perhaps in a new way, uh, the knowledge provided is, is itself not new. And therefore, you know, simulation is not um, a source of new knowledge. Yeah, I've never been persuaded by that argument. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> in, I suppose in some sense it's trivially true in that, you know, we program the simulation. But if that were actually the case, then why would anyone ever take the trouble to actually do a simulation? Um, because, you know, surely we're, we're learning things from the simulation. We, you know, if, even if you want to say, well, look, we, we put, you know, we program the simulation in a certain way. But, you know, implicitly the, the results are, are in the program, but we don't know what they are. Um, and so we want to see how a particular model is going to behave under certain conditions, and that we learn from a simulation. And, and the other, I think, important point here is that there are lots of stochastic simulations where we actually don't know what the outcome is going to be. So, um, I mean, we do learn things, I and mean, I think... We, if we just go back and look at the the simple examples about you know nuclear waste, I mean, if we know already how how to store nuclear waste or how to get rid of nuclear waste, um, then and we're building a, a program to simulate that particular process, and we know what the outcome is going to be because we don't learn anything new from it, then why are we even doing it? And I, I've always found this argument to be, and, I, and many, many people make this argument, but I've always found it to be completely puzzling, um, the idea that we're not learning anything new. Um, because, you know, why are we doing all of these simulations in medical physics? Why are we simulating, um, you know, these cancer tumors? Um, using boundary problems if we're not learning anything new. Um, it just seems to be, it just is, is kind of crazy to me to, to even think that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer that other than, you know, what I just said. But in terms of the, the reliability of simulation, I mean, again, I think that you have to look at um, the, the basis of the simulation itself. And I talked a little bit in Chapter 7 about the process of verification, the methodology of verification and validation. And uh, that comes mainly out of um, work in, in uh, computational fluid dynamics where these, um, these methods have been used for um, many years. And they are Mostly, the, the verification part of it has to do with essentially a mathematical question. Um, have the correct equa- have the have the equations been solved correctly? So you have equations from your theoretical model that you want to then um, uh, make into a discrete model um, that you can uh, use to to build an, an algorithm. And you want to know that those model equations have been solved correctly and the discretiza- discretization 
process hasn't resulted in um, any uh, in the omission of any important information. Mm-hmm. And then when you when that's been more or less established, I mean that's never established in the way that you think about a mathematical proof. Verification is always an ongoing process because there are questions about the code, there are questions about the solution verification in addition to code verification. So it's a very complicated process and it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. Um, and then the question about validation comes after that. And that question is really a physics question as opposed to a mathematics question. And that is, have the correct equations been solved? In other words, have the equations that have, the equations that have been solved, are they the ones that reasonably describe the system we're interested in? And that, of course, is established um, by comparing... The, the simulation output with some kind of experimental data. So here we're back to the comparison of, of simulation with experiment. Right. Now, sometimes the experimental data is just not available. Um, other times, experimental data is very difficult to try to produce. The founders of this methodology um, describe the situation in terms of, of validation experiments. So the ideal is that you construct a validation experiment that pays attention to the parameters in the computational model. You don't just go away and and uh, compare it with experimental data from some kind of similar experiment that was done because that data may not have been collected in the proper way, uh, the proper parameters may not have been taken account of. So the the goal is to create these simulation or these, uh, sorry, uh, validation experiments. But of course that's tremendously expensive. It's not often or not always uh, capable of being done. Um, so, for example, at, at, at CERN, um, at the LHC, they compared some of their original simulation data with um, data that had come from, uh, uh, the, from Fermilab and from Tevatron. That was data that was produced at much lower energies than anything that was done at CERN, but it kind of gave them a baseline. But they had no way of of comparing uh, their data, their simulated data with some kind of experimental uh, validation experiment. But nevertheless, there are, you know, ways of of trying to validate uh, simulation data. So the the whole reliability of the simulation depends not just on the the verification and validation, um, but also on the context in which it's used. Um, and you know the the way in which the um, the experimental methodology um, that's in place relates to the simulation. So it's a very complicated uh, process. Mm-hmm. But again, um, the reliability of that um, raises raises questions. But the validation of ordinary experimental methodology also raises questions. I mean, experiment it's not as though experiments have no problem with validating their, their methodological um, procedures or their, uh, the procedures that they undertake to produce particular results. So there are always these problems in science, and, and simulation, I think, um, the, the, the 
procedures that are being put in place to assist in validation are constantly being developed and reviewed. And um, so, again, I think the problem is not one that, you know, simulation is definitely not trustworthy, but rather the individual simulations have to be looked at on an individual case-by-case basis in order to determine that reliability. Okay. I think there's... um I think we have time for perhaps one more question. Um, so, uh, and this kind of goes back toward more to the beginning of the, I mean, there's so many questions to ask, but let me, let me just uh, get this one in is I think the, the no new knowledge, you know, argument, there's a sort of a general background idea that there's, you know, little, little of essential epistemic worth. That you you know it's sort of pragmatically yes we need it we can't otherwise access certain things we couldn't otherwise calculate certain things, um, but that you know it, at in some fundamental epistemic level you know it's it's uh, there's no explanatory power or no new knowledge or something coming out of generally, not just simulations, but models and, and things like that. Um, so let, let me kind of condense that into an argument that I've heard, uh, which might be thought of as a dispensability argument. And, and again, this is not pragmatic, right? You can say pragmatically we can't dispense with any of this stuff. It's a matter of epistemic dispensability. Um, um, it's uh, you know sometimes put and this is it's kind of odd it's sometimes put that um, once you get a model of some sort some sort of description uh, uh, in mathematical terms uh, then the other sorts of descriptions of the system. Um, are somehow just uh, a gloss of some sense. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think, actually, I think these are two separate questions here. Um, and maybe they're actually opposed to each other. So one is the idea that the, um, the simulations don't add anything. There's no new explanatory power. Um, and I think you've kind of answered that question at least. An, another opposite view, actually, I think, is the idea that once you have a mathematical model and you can describe some bit of reality in terms of that model, uh, then the qualitative descriptions that they had are replaced and all the explanatory power is given by the mathematics and the qualitative descriptions are just a gloss on what is fundamentally mathematically describable. Um, that's sort of a, you know, I, I may have mixed up two different sorts of issues there, and I'm trying to separate them. Um, so let, let me ask about the gloss issue. Yeah, well, I think the gloss issue... Um, again, I, I don't necessarily see the opposition in that um, in that issue because 
it, it sounds like um, the argument is based on a, a dichotomy between a mathematical description and a qualitative description. And, of course, that seems like to me like a false dichotomy because the math- you give the mathematical description a qualitative description. The mathematical description gives you a qualitative description. So just to take a very simple example, if we think of the, um, the ideal gas law, you know, pressure times volume equals a gas constant times temperature. And you say, well, what does the physical system have to look like in order for that law to hold? Well, um, we have to assume that, um, that there's, the molecules are infinitesimal and that there's no forces acting between them. And it's only in systems like that that the ideal gas law holds. So the qualitative description is an, emerges out of the mathematical description. Um, and when we, a mathematical model of, of any sort is going to have a qualitative description that comes along with it. So if we build a, a mathematical model of a, of a, a cancer tumor, um, then we need to be able to talk in, in sort of qualitative terms about what the implications of that model are for the way the tumor grows and spreads. So I don't see the two as being uh, in oppose, at, opposed to one another. Um, I think that the, the motivation for much of that opposition comes from people who want to argue against uh, mathematical modeling in the social sciences. And they say things like, well, if we talk about mathematical models of, of uh, you know, groups of people, um, certain sectors of the population, um, then what happens is we're trying to make everybody uh, homogeneous and we're ignoring particular important complexities of the individual. So, you know, things like evolutionary game theory is often accused of, of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, multi-agent simulations are often accused of doing that, that, you know, we just assume everybody is the same. Um, uh, simulations in, in financial markets where you assume that the, uh, the agents are, in fact, um, non-intelligent, they, they look just like particles in, in, a, in, a, in a statistical physical system. So they're like atoms bouncing back and forth off one another. Um, people don't like that. And so I think that the, but nevertheless, these models are often crucial for predicting how the economy is going to behave under certain circumstances. Um, predicting how we behave as groups to certain kinds of, uh, say, advertising campaigns and that sort of thing. So, but, but people want to say that these mathematical models actually somehow uh, diminish the uh, complex nature of the individual. So I think that's where a lot of that, that uh, pro- uh, the motivation for that uh, dichotomy comes from. I don't think that there's a problem with that in physics because, you know, the, the often we don't 
we don't really know what the physical nature of the system is until we have a mathematical model of it, and then you can kind of read off, well, the system must look like this based on my mathematical model, or the success of my mathematical model. So, you know, I think maybe we need to... I don't really have any kind of expertise in the philosophy of social science, um, but uh, I think that most of those arguments are probably... Uh, grounded in in philosophy of social science. Okay, so um, I think we are we are out of time, but to um, to bring the conversation to a close, I'd like to ask about your next project. I mean, are you uh, working on something uh, related to this, or are you going into a different uh, different project entirely? What's what's next on the horizon for you? Um, well, I I haven't. There are a number of things that um, have kind of come up for me as a result of, of finishing this book, things I felt that perhaps I haven't made quite clear. But in terms of, of a new, well, it's not really a new direction, but um, I'm becoming interested in uh, the field of econophysics, which is using mathematical methods from physics to model um, financial markets. And that's an area where uh, renormalization group techniques have become increasingly important. And so I'm especially interested in that field because there you get a lot of the issues that, are, that you brought up today um, coming to the fore, which is, you know, how can we think we can model financial markets that are ba- made up of intelligent agents using mathematical methods from physics. I mean, why should we even think that that's going to be successful? And yet it seems to be. So, um, so that's an area that I'd really like to, uh, to look into because in many ways, a lot of the uh, work that's been done, mathematical work that's been done in econometrics um, has been based on models that uh, had their origin in physics. So it's not a new thing, uh, this borrowing of mathematical techniques from, uh, from physics into economics. But econophysics is really a, a sort of new discipline that was only uh, coined in probably the late 1990s by um, a physicist at Boston University called um, Stanley. And so there hasn't been much written on it in, uh, in the philosophy literature, and it's very controversial among economists themselves. So I've gotten quite interested in that, and so hope to um, maybe uh, investigate that a bit more. Oh, that sounds, that sounds fascinating. Um, and I'm, I, your mention of renormalization, I mean, you did have a whole chapter towards the beginning on, on that technique and, and how it provides... Uh, explanatory power, which unfortunately we didn't get to, but hopefully uh, that will encourage readers of the book to um, to look at that chapter in particular. Um, so, uh, well, thank you very much for your time, and um, I wish you luck with the econophysics work. That sounds very interesting, and uh, I will be in, maybe in touch about that later. Well, thank you very much, Carrie, and uh, I really appreciate you giving me this time to talk about the book and 
Also, I'd like to thank you for your uh, interesting and, and thoughtful questions. They've been thought-provoking for me, and uh, I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Margaret Morrison. We've been talking about her new book, Reconstructing Reality, Models, Mathematics, and Simulations, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.